Hey now, welcome to the dirty side of the track, America's leading Formula One podcast. I'm Brian, that's Rob. We are in the middle of the offseason, but the beginning of calendar 24. Happy New Year, Rob. Yeah, Happy New Year. As you said, welcome to season three of the dirty side of the track. I mean, I'm amazed we got to episode three, let alone season three. So, <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm not sure what this season's going to hold for us. Um, we've got a number, a couple of months before we get any action we've got probably six weeks before we get internet going into meltdown over car reveals or whatever it is and probably even less than six weeks actually um was it february the early 12th Feb. i think the first ones are coming out so even less than that right so we thought well, what we're gonna do is um arm you guys uh, whether you're new fans or uh old fans there's probably bits and pieces in the history of f1 you know you just you're just not sure of and uh, me and brian sure as hell aren't either so we Today, we thought we would do a dirty side delves in the decades and go through each decade and just do a quick synopsis of some kind of cheat sheet for you so you can sound knowledgeable down the pub, uh, maybe answer the odd pub, pub question, quiz question, pub quiz question, uh, you know, and throw in some little pieces and parts, give you some avenues to go and explore on your own time. There's some things in here that we're, as we were looking, I'm thinking we could have made whole episodes out of this. So, And we still can. And we still can. So that'll be today. We're going to do news and social. Brian's video vault, as I think, got an entry in today, uh, and then we'll dive in, dive into the decades. Let's do it. Uh, so yeah, let, let's jump in. Now, unfortunately, we have to jump in on a bit of a lower note. So uh, this week, former Indy 500 winner, is it, I'm going to say Jill. Gil, yeah, yeah, it's not hard. It's not a Gil, no. is it? Gil uh, de Ferran has died at the age of 56. Uh, Brazilian Automobile Confederation said that he suffered a heart attack at a private motor racing club in Florida on Friday. Um, he'd been a sporting director, instrumental role in returning McLaren from their lowest ebb in 2018 to finishing third last year. So i got to be honest, it's not a name that jumped out at me that I was familiar with, but you can always gauge the reaction of the other people in the sport. So there's a huge outpouring on uh, all social media of all the different teams and people kind of just paying tribute to the guy. I did not, if I'm being completely transparent, I did not know he had a role at McLaren. I knew Gilles DeFerrin as an Indy 500 winner. And so I was familiar with the name from watching Indy 500 when I was younger. And Gilles DeFerrin, when I saw he passed, I'm like, oh, that's bad. And then I didn't even know some of those F1 connections. Um, so, yeah, obviously thinking of him and his family and friends and everyone he uh, touched in his career. Uh, on a different note, but still potentially sad, depending on how good you are at betting, the odds have come out for the 2024 season. And so they've actually been out for a little bit, but they've tweaked them recently. And so using Bet ESPN, which, uh, you know, is not necessarily the greatest sports book alive, but we'll take it. They have the futures for the Drivers and Constructors Championship up. And I'm going to start with Constructors because I found this the most fascinating, which then colors the Drivers Championship. Rob, who do you think has the highest odds to win the Constructors Championship in 24? Yeah, don't think too long about it. But, but, uh, highest odds or best odds? Because highest odds, odds you know to I mean. me mean the worst Whatever, odds. Whatever, you get my the... point. Who's the, the favorite? Uh, well, Red Bull. Of course. Probably by, by a lot. By a country mile. But who's second? This is where it got a little spicy to me. And second with a bullet. It's not even like that close. I mean, it is close enough, but it ain't like right on top of each other. Do you, do you want me to feign guessing, despite the fact I'm looking at the notes and can see the grid? Um... The answer is McLaren. And so with McLaren, that close, uh, and again, not super close to Red Bull, but second, as I said, you know, all to themselves. 
followed by Mercedes, and then close to Mercedes is Ferrari. And then from there, it is beyond a country mile. We are talking about halfway around the globe to Aston Martin. So the four teams with any realistic shot, according to Vegas. Red Bull is a massive favorite. McLaren has decent odds in second. And then there's sort of this pack of two, Mercedes and Ferrari. I'm going to pull you up on you with that. I know it's early. We're recording Saturday morning here, and uh, maybe my brain hasn't woken up yet. And also, I don't understand American odds. So I'm just going to do the the raw numbers here. So McLaren at plus 550, whatever the hell that means. So you bet $100, you get $550 back plus your bet. Uh, That's like five and a half to one then. Okay. So um, that's exactly right. So seven to one, nine to one. So is it that much? They're all sort of close, but McLaren. Well, McLaren is closer to Mercedes, the Mercedes is is, is to the, Ferrari. You tried to paint McLaren get, out. The closer you get to zero, the higher you know your odds are. The better they think you're a favorite, getting close to a favorite. Uh, yeah, no, no, I get that. I'm yeah. just saying that McLaren are closer to Mercedes than Mercedes are to Ferrari. Again, when you get further out, it's kind of like BS numbers. So it's oh, more precision. I tell your own story here. This is the Brian narrative. Oh, Jesus, sometimes working with Rob is a real pain in the neck. All right, so then the favorite for the drivers, just to close mm, this out, is obviously I wonder. Max. Emilian Verstappen by, again, you know, he's even more of a favorite than Red Bull is. So what I found fascinating, but informed by the constructor, is that the second high, second best odds to win, and again, not necessarily nearly a favorite, and not quite as close as McLaren is, is McLaren's lead driver, Lando. I mean, I did not think the number two favorite to win the 2024 Drivers' Championship would be Lando going into this. But again, if McLaren's second... It kind of makes sense, I guess, right? Yeah, no, it it does, and it's interesting. I mean, they must be putting a lot of stock in McLaren's star to carry on rising, and that Ferrari aren't going to sort out last year's troubles, or that Mercedes aren't going to bounce back. Because you've basically got there second favorite, a guy who has never won a, a race. race, right? <laughs> Ahead of multiple world champion, Lew- um, world champion Lewis Hamilton, multiple race winner Charles Leclerc, uh, George has even won one. Uh, and then you get Oscar coming in, like Same ahead odds. of another round, like ahead of Carlos Sainz, who's won, who's won multiple races, right? And, or multiple, whatever. But yeah, um, multiple, yes. And yeah, I nearly said multiple championships, which is obviously no. wrong. That's just my Ferrari fanboying just disappearing yeah. off into the distance. But yeah, you've got like Lando and Oscar placed well ahead of like seasoned veterans in decent machinery. Uh, so. They've all been let in on some factory secrets from McLaren. They don't want to lose a ton of money. I don't know, but it is fascinating. Like you said, Oscar, Charles, and George all have the same odds to win the Drivers' Championship. And so that is a, an interesting group because, as you say, then we have Checo fairly close behind him, even though we're in higher odds here, but right on their tail. Fernando right behind them, and then Carlos right behind Fernando. And after that, it's uh, forget about it. We could you know take it apart, but I think they're just making it up. Danny yeah, Rick yeah. is ah. the best of the rest, which was shocking to me. But again, all by that point, who cares? So in terms of odds, not drivers. I care about the drivers, not the odds. So anyway, Lando leads Lewis, who leads bigly, bigly on Charles, George, and Oscar. And then it's, then it's a group of three. I was just surprised when I saw Lando second. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, that's a story for the pod. One other one that we found, and this one makes me a little sad, but ties into what we just discussed. Red Bull head of performance engineering Ben Waterhouse said the RB20 is at least six months old. Oh, no. It's not new news because we knew they were working on it last year. I know, but hold on. We are already starting to shift our attention to the RB21, even though the season hasn't started yet. So, so oh, I think no. this is a nothing burger. Do you? I think they're, yeah, I think they're teams I, I, bringing I, upgrades at the end of night, or, you know, at the end of 23. Who we, are just we'd have to ask Paul. 
So, Paul, if you're listening to this, get in touch with us because the same way there was this story that came out that was on about the RB, whatever it was, failed its first crash test yeah, inspection, right? Like whatever. And it's like, apparently like most cars do because what they try to do is they engineer the other way they don't create the most uh, robust car ever and if it passes go oh great they basically try to get away with almost the lightest lightweight um and, and edge up until they finally hit the standard so you normally will fail one of the first ones anyway that's not what i want to ask paul just generally i would have thought engineering departments in any of the constructors are always, always going to have a unit and it might vary depending on which team you are how many resources you can put on it but i'm sure there's always somebody whose job it is to look to next year That's so the true. fact that red bull have got people already going ahead i don't think is any different than they've probably done for the last four or five or mercedes just, or ferrari have done it bothers me that the team that dominated 23 so big we all knew, and I told you I was worried about it then in the summer when they said they're shifting quietly to 24 car, but they've already, quote, started the 25. And you're right. Maybe it's just a clay mold in the corner with people thinking yeah. about what's going to work. Or maybe your dire prediction a year ago that we'd see Red Bull dominate all the way through to the new regs could be right. Oh, God, please don't let I mean, some teams can't even get their names right at this point. Speaking of which. Well, let, let's move on to that one. This was just... Um... I still haven't even picked all the way through, uh, into this. So um, Alfa Romeo, Sauber, Stake, whatever, all of that jazz announced the new names. Alfa Romeo dropping the, the headline sponsorship, Stake taking over. And they decided to go on this big drawn out teaser on social media of what their new name was going to be after there was such a backlash to their previous announcement of a name, which was rubbish. Um, so they started off all this like teaser trailer out there. They put a video out. It's coming on 1st of Jan. You know, watch this space, blah, 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 blah. And then... First of Jan arrived and nothing happened on their <laughs> Twitter page. Um, it's kind of done on Instagram. On Instagram, they started dropping um, these kind of tiled effect pictures so that by the time they dropped all nine, you had their new logo, uh, which, by the way, we ripped off brilliantly on Instagram ourselves. Um, but there's this story going around that they, they ran into some problem procuring the new um, count name. And Lee uh, on the Discord dropped it in, and I, and I kind of went down that rabbit hole as well. But... Somebody had already taken, like, at Stake F1 team or whatever it is, and was running it as an account, and their bio was like, uh, who knew this is not the Stake F1 team or something like that. There, that now is actually owned by Stake F1. They do seem to have got it back off this dude. They've since posted nothing. So their latest post on Twitter is still... 1-1-2024, ooh, what's coming? It's like, seriously, did they lo lose the password or something? Or is the admin still on vacation? It must be. I did see they changed their color scheme to black and green. So the whole world is now assuming that the car will be black and green. We'll have to see. If, that's if they get it right, would look, could look awesome. It could. The, the mocked-up livery that uh, Lee dropped in the Discord channel is terrible. But if there is some kind of jet black, neon green livery that could look pretty sweet or it could look like like a green lantern superhero ripoff let's hope that's <laughs> yeah, exactly um a couple of bits and pieces now you, you know it's it's quiet time um there was some interviews with oscar and uh, logan done about um what it's like to be a rookie what did you learn this year really the headline is they both almost said the same thing the jump between f2 and f1 is huge um, you can kind of not beat your best and get away with it in the lower series. You can kind of wing it a little bit and maybe still bring it home, maybe even win, but if not, still get a podium. He said you just simply cannot do that in Formula One. It absolutely punishes you the moment you're 99% on it. Yeah. Um, and there's been a few callings for this, actually, that um, they should look to kind of close the gap between the specs used in F1 and F2 to try to make that jump less severe. You know, do you use last year's car or some sort of similar type chassis? Because apparently they don't even have kind of the ground effect cars in F2, the 
the difference in just the car itself, let alone the caliber of person you're up against, is like light and day compared to. Uh, I mean, here's the sad thing. Like, I look at these different cars, and I don't think I'm serious. I don't think there's a chance I could get an F1 car around the track. Not even fast. Just get it around. Like, I don't think I'd come back around. The, Ten minutes later, they'd be like, "Where is he?" And I'd be you, off. You wouldn't in pull the grass. away. Yeah, I, exactly. I don't even think I'd, I'd still be in the in the starting. <laughs> I, I think I've said to you this before. There was yeah. an old Top Gear episode of Richard right. Hammond, and he got I into remember. an old Renault, and it, and there was about like fifteen takes of him trying to get the drop the clutch and pull away. He just stalled it like, like a, a million oh, times before he even that, got yeah. away. So I think that would be pretty accurate. Um, the F two cars, as a delusional motorsport fan who's a male, okay, those are all characteristics that make me believe in myself more than I should. I saw a stat, 50% of men think they should, could land an airplane if the pilots died. Give me a break. I mean, I could. I mean, there's what, there's I, half, I could, half of men out there think they couldn't? Yeah, exactly. I could because I play Flight Simulator. I mean, it'd be easy. I would just push people aside. I got this. Where's the reset button? Um, I watched the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> How hard could it be? Surely I could do this. Um, and so anyway, yeah, don't do it. All right. And so I think F2 cars would be hard to drive, but possible. However, here's the problem, and I'm just being honest. Please don't come at me on Twitter. I think I could drive like an, uh, the I almost called it the uh, W Series, the Academy car. I look at that, and the time difference between the series, I look at that, and I think I could drive it. And you know what? I know I can't. Like, me in my heart, I said, give me that car. I could bang around the track, and I'm sure I'd be terrible compared to the people who are actually driving it. The women would just lap me. In two laps, they'd be lapping me. But I think I could get it around the track. And then there's a little part of my brain that's smart. And it's like, no, you don't have a chance doing that either, buddy. So, like, I agree with you. I think there is a huge delta between F2 and F1. But at the same time, you also have to remember there's a huge money delta between F2 and F1. And so you can't make the cars that complex, that technical, and that expensive. Oh, yeah, Exactly. So, I agree. Um, which is why I think if they had some kind of way of feeding down, even if it would just say the... Uh, the chassis and the aero, if it can't have all the various, uh, because they don't have to spend to develop that. If it, if it was almost like F2 was just um, in the same way that in IndyCar, everyone yeah. has the same chassis, the same Delara, aero. Have Delara give F, everyone yeah. the same chassis. If F1 just came to like, even even the show car that they use for to promote <laughs> the new regs, that new body shape, you know, if, I, I don't know, I'm talking off the top of my head now and making no sense whatsoever. The one so you put your Heineken right. on in, in Montreal yes. to take a picture? Yeah, like, I'm going to rest one. that on the winglet thing. And people are like, you can't yep. do that. Well, you can. I did. Anyway, um, and now we've got some details emerging about uh, Mercedes W15. Um, I've got a lot of notes here, which essentially boiled down to massive change. No concepts of W13 and W14 almost being kept. New chassis, new front and rear suspension, new gearbox, refined aerodynamics, side, pod, side pods are going to be changed. Seat position is further back because both George and Hamilton said that it felt like you're sitting on top of the front wheels. Uh, smaller gearbox to have a better layout for the current generation of ground effect floors. Y you name it, James Allison has come in and said, yep, not doing that anymore. So, who knows? Is it too much of a change and Mercedes are going to struggle again and we're going to see them sort of jostling around the, the mid, mid to upper end of the points? Or is this going to be a nails it in one and Mercedes are suddenly right back at the front fighting? I don't know, but it's going to be fun to... Well, Las Vegas on that and thinks they'll be behind McLaren, so we'll just... Well, exactly, exactly. But maybe they didn't uh, take into effect the Allison factor. Could very uh, well be. Nui Mark II. Well, not quite, but who knows. <laughs> All right, well, so that's the news. All that's fit to print. Um, let's open up the video vault on a special occasion for the video vault. 
As promised last week, it's a single video, Video Vault. Listener Laura, who is amazing, uh, sent this to me like six weeks ago. And I told her, I'm like, hey, I'm kind of in the middle of some chaos at work. It's a longer video. I promised to watch this. And she said, no worries. And we traded a bunch of notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. A, for sending it. And B, for your patience. WTF happened to Andrea Moda, the worst F1 team ever on the Josh Revel Revel? Revel channel. Um, it's 17 minutes long. You have to watch this. Everyone has to watch this. It is so good, and I want to explain why. And I'm not going to give away a ton of it, but I'll give a little bit of it away. So, a few spoilers. These were the days in, I can, now I can't remember the year, the 80s, um, where you had, it was 80s, where you had fly-by-night F1 teams. So the same way you can't have an F2 car that's super expensive because they can't afford it, Back then, F1 was not the sport it is now. It's not the publicly traded, company-owned, you know, billion-dollar operation. Everyone wants to get in, but no one can. Back then, you could get in with a team and basically rock up, say, yeah, yeah I'm in, $100,000 fee, sign me up, I'll be there tomorrow. And you'd show up with drivers, and you'd have tires that didn't match, and you'd be using chassis from literally made by students in engineering schools. Um, it was amazing. And there was a lot of whiff of rich energy in this except not as a sponsor, as the owner. A guy no one had heard of who might have been part of the mob who owned a, some, a shoe company, Andrea something or other. And, Andrea Shoes? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I almost said Stella, but it was it is an S, and it's something like that. And so Andrea Moda was a shoe company uh, named after this guy, and they became the sponsor, and they barely got it together to race a few times. They literally had drivers they didn't want driving the car. I'm not going to say who they were because it makes it more interesting. But you, just check it out. It is wild. Like this, the fly-by-night aspect. Showing up to races just so they wouldn't get a penalty with cars they couldn't run. I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. That, that would never happen in a bazillion years today in the well-polished, you know, incredibly expensive, high-valuation world of F1 today. And I, I recognize, like, it's probably for the better. But part of me loves the idea of seeing stuff like this happen. And you will never see anything like that happen ever again in F1. So that's what's kind no. of a downer. But it's funny. So, Rob, you got to check it out. Everyone listening, I will check do. it out. And, Laura, thank you once again. Feel free to continue to send me the videos. Those That was amazing. And we will close the door. Although you've closed it, I will do one note about a video, which yeah. um, I got all excited because um, I guess I got sent a note on threads um now i have to wait for my phone to open up the threads because i stupidly didn't write uh the name down i don't want to get it wrong fun fantasy hq on threads oh yeah Adam. uh sent a note yeah yeah I, I know we know them but i just didn't want to say the wrong one because there's a number yeah. of different fantasy f1s out there and uh had re reacted to my kind of my tale of woe that i couldn't watch brawn uh, on Disney Plus in America, and, and and he sent me a note in to say, no, you can get there. It's probably the settings in your app are set to uh, 14 plus by default. You've got to go deep, deep, deep into the settings and unlock TVMA for that profile you want to watch it on. I was like, oh, yes. yeah, okay. It was true. The ratings were not... Um, were not there. I did update it, which then did allow me to search for Braun, which then did seem to find it. And then as I clicked on it, it then told me this is not available in your region. Oh. Uh, it is still locked behind the Hulu. So, Brian, I am going to use the dirty side of the track at gmail.com account to set up a uh, Hulu um, trial so I can just binge the three episodes. 
That's so uh, I got to watch it because so many people are talking about it now, and apparently it's been done so well, and it will come up in our delve down the decades, which we're about to start now. So let's uh, do it. Let's do it. Let's get in our DeLoreans and uh, set the flux capacitor for 1950 and go all the way to the birth of F1. Um, what we're going to do, we kind of got like three parts to each decade we'll discuss, kind of quick synopsis of what the cars look like, a uh, little bit of fact and trivia about uh, who won the titles, both uh, drivers and constructors, and then just quirky stuff that we found that we thought might work at, you know, if you're drinking coffee or having a beer and talking F1, you can throw in these little tidbits of, yeah, didn't in, in 1950 blah, didn't blah, blah, blah happen? Well, that's coming for you right now. So, cars in the 1950s, Brian. These are bathtubs with engines at the front. That's it. This. That's all I've got to de to describe them, right? Yeah, I love this. I love the way this started. I because again, you wouldn't have seen this car on the road though. So it was a purpose built race car, and they're like, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna make it look like this. And I'm like, all right, I'm here for it. I like it. B bathtubs, engine in the front, seat at the back. There's a great video, and we'll get into the drivers in a second. But just to highlight this of Fangio, and again, we'll talk about Fangio in about a second where they show him tooling around a track in this car, which looks just like Rob described. And he gets in the car with nothing more than basically a leather helmet on, a set of goggles, and a lap belt. And he, his torso is hanging out of the car. Like, you can see his arms. Like, there's no roll bar. There's no cage. He literally, you can see, if he lifts his arm up, you can see his ribs. Like, you know, where, and then under that is where the lap belt is. You're going around these corners incredibly fast. How do you just not fall out? I know the lap belt holds you in, but I would, I mean, that's a big no thanks for me when I look back to this, especially given today. So anyway, it was an interesting era, an interesting decade, as Rob said, in the started in the 50s. The first champion was Farina in 1950 and often overlooked because Fangio then took over. Five titles in the decade. He wins 51. In between that and Fangio's next was Alberto Ascari, also known as Ciccio. We did a Vale's Tale on Ascari, who won 52 uh, and, and 53. Fangio. I'm getting there, brother. Okay, and so okay. the 52 championship by Ascari is one of, statistically, the greatest F1 seasons of all time. We'll talk about another one in the 60s. And then Fangio takes back over 54, 55, 56, 57. Yes, we did a Vale's Tales on Fangio as well because Rob and I, at least I can speak for myself here, didn't know enough about some of these early drivers. And we had a blast learning about Ascari and Fangio. Check out the link to those on our website, www.dirtysideofthetrack.com. Special episodes, Vale's Tales. It was awesome, like watching these guys tool around. And, and you'll even find out why Fangio didn't win in 58, but I'm not going to spoil that here. You'll have Ooh, to check the video. Yeah, nice, nice little link there to, to self-promote. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and pretty much um, there's very few um, constructors at this point. I think, and I didn't write this down, but for the first couple of years, it's pretty much Alfa Romeo. Uh, well, first year, 50s, I think, was just Alfa Romeo. Right. And then Ferrari, Maserati, Maserati Ferrari, yeah. and others started coming in early. But you really only had those, like, two or three at the beginning. Um, and there wasn't even... Um, a constructor's title at that point. For the first 50 through 57, there were no constructor titles. Um, the first one ever was in 1958 by a constructor that I'd never heard of, and you won't have heard of since. Oh, well, I don't even know when they disappeared. Well, maybe I'll have to go and look into that, but Van Wall. Van Wall, your first ever constructors in 1958, so... 
Um, but 58 was a, a year when Britain decided it was going to say, see what was going on with this Formula One stuff and say, yeah, we'll have one of them. We'll come in and we'll win a, a driver's championship. And Mike Hawthorne came in in his Ferrari and said, here we go. Here, this is for you, your majesty. And they, uh, that what the appetite of the Brits and uh, they're going to feature quite heavily on the rest of this. Not that I'm being biased here at all, Brian. So you're saying they started the colonization in 58? Okay. <laughs> Um. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the quirky things in this this era, because I, I you found these and I thought they were interesting. Oh yeah. This I think we covered it in one of the Bales Tales on either Ascari or Fangio, but um they would actually share cars. So um quite often if a team's lead driver retired from the race, they'd pull in the reserve driver, the second driver, sorry, and say, yeah, sorry, but you know Fangio's crashed out, so he's having your car. That's crazy. <laughs> But given that they're just shapeless bathtubs with a lap belt, I guess there wasn't too much of a problem with the uh, drivers fitting yeah. in seats and uh, <laughs> so any of that kind of stuff, right? It's just... be done. It was probably a church pew, church pew it, anyway. It wasn't yeah, even and it, and, it, and it led to some like really bizarre results because you could get classified twice. You know, you could be in two different cars and get classified in different places. You might get classified as. I'm not sure anybody ever won a race and then flagged down their uh, second place driver and went and jumped in that one and bought it through lap, the field and finished like. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, Fangio wins it by like two clear laps, pulls in his teammate, takes the second car and manages to finish second. <laughs> that never happened, but there were strange um, yeah. uh, sort of finishings like that as well. And here's one for you just to throw in down the pub. And, and I did not know this. So if I didn't you're know this, this up, you've got me on, you got me on here. If I'm making it up, then, oh, I really should quote the website I found it from. I've been on a lot of the last couple of days researching this from autosport.com, motorsport.com. Anyway, Formula One was almost launched as Formula A. Which Wait. It just doesn't. Needs a sound effect. Formula A? Formula A. And they felt it didn't kind of have enough kind of perception of being the pinnacle. Like, okay, A is the first letter in the alphabet, but Formula One. So I'm glad they made that change. Which also allowed us to have the, one of the greatest video games of all time with the greatest name, F-Zero. Because yeah. they made the game and realized two, you know, 3 and GP2 and then F1 is the pinnacle. So what's lower than 1, if you're going, you know, you know what I'm saying, it's 0. And they made it F-Zero, which is the only thing better than F1. And uh, Super Nintendo game from back in the day, shout out, I'm playing that tonight. Uh, all right. So there's, there's way more we could have dived into on the 50s. Yeah, yeah. And like Ooh. we say, we did uh, Vale's Tales on it. And the, the, the point here isn't to give you the complete uh, uh, digging into the decade. It was just the Reader's Digest version. So that's the 50s. Um, the 60s come along. And we'll touch on this a bit more in the quirky pieces. But um, two main things happen. If we look at a car from the 1960s, and I'm not saying this is the very first car of 1960. It's just if you visualize a car in your mind's eye from the 1960s, suddenly now, engine at the back, uh, driver ahead of the engine, and these little things called wings starting to appear on cars as well. So, uh, yeah, and this the 60s pretty much was the... Oh, sorry, go on, you were going to say something well, about the car. The wings, brand. I'm just thinking about it. Was that the beginning of the end of good styling of road cars? Because they put these wings on race cars, and now they start putting wings on road cars 10, 15, 20 years later that don't need it. Like, I know you like your Prius. It does not need a wing. You're not going fast enough, and the air, it ain't going to help you on the arrow. Just take that off your Prius. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I will come back to the wings uh, piece yeah. uh, when we get to the to, to the quirky bits. But um, yeah, so this was I'm I'm going to say the '60s really did uh, bring Britain to the table um, yep. in F1. Um, out of the 
the 10 years we had six drivers six british drivers win the world drivers championship and seven constructor titles uh, down there as well so uh, i just quickly hit on some of these here because you can go and look them up if you want to know the list of winners but um if we talk about the we had uh, jack brabham in a in a british cooper graham hill in a brabham jim clark another veils tales uh, in a lotus john surtees jim clark again um then we had some non-British drivers. We had New Zealand's Danny Denny Holm and Jack Brabham in the um, one by Brabham, sorry, uh, in '66 and '67. Graham Hill back in a Lotus in '68. Uh, Stewart in '69, but in a French car. And that covers pretty much the whole decade, apart from one entry. Do you want to bring home the bacon on this one, Brian? I do, and I have a question for you. If you know the answer, it comes up later. Uh, the first World Drivers Championship for America was Phil Hill in a Ferrari in 1961. But it's not in the notes. We talk about it later. Can you remember who's the second and only other World Drivers' Championship from these great United States of America? Well, I believe it's the man trying to spend some buckaroonies to get into the sport again. Mario Andretti. Uh, the one and only Andretti, yeah. Correct, in the late so, 70s. So just a note here. Um, you know, you mentioned Jim Clark and the Vale's Tale. Sadly, the Scari one and now the Clark one are two of three that we've done from this decade where the drivers passed. Um, and yeah. so it it is... Uh, and and while racing, um, although I think Astagari was testing, but regardless, um, it shows how dangerous, and you'll hear this throughout, how dangerous this sport really is. And we would lose drivers, we, as an F1 fan, part of the community, we would lose drivers every year, and fans, and spectators. It was incredibly dangerous. And so one of the things that we may not give enough credit to is in the last, I don't know, 25 years or so, the rise of the safety of the cars. Yes, they've gotten bigger. Yes, they're barges. But we've seen crashes. I would say Grosjean's 20 crash in Bahrain is probably the highlight where a driver survived something they really honestly had no business surviving because of the safety features. There were none of those. And so it's sad to say, but we saw a ton of people passing and some of them being the best of the best, the Jim Clarks, yeah. the Ascaris. We'll talk about Senna. We'll talk about people who won the championship and passed. We'll get into all that. It's a sad yeah, note, I mean, but it is an it, incredible it, it is. sport. Um, and it kind of goes back to you know, the vision that you just conjured up of, uh, you know, Fangio or Scari hanging out the side of a car with a lap belt on with zero, you know, zero protection of the torso at all. You know, we lose one of these things uh, into a wall, into a tree, into a whatever. You went walking away and from there were trees. The there were trees the right next to the track on some of these oh, tracks. Yeah. Well, there's one of them, and I didn't note it down here, and I can't remember what decade it is, but I think it was the 60s, where somebody passed away by crashing into a telegraph pole at the side yeah. of the racetrack. Um, because some of these, obviously, the street tracks, they don't do them the way they do now, and everything, although it's a street, it's like armored barriers inside your roads oh. it was like no we're going to race down that street okay we'll just make sure old dorothy isn't posting her letters in the mailbox that day but other than that we're good to go i mean and thank um, god right thank god because i love this sport and it would not exist if without all these safety things if we'd been go if we'd kept going along this would have been gone the way of the dodo and spectators were often hurt too because they were so close to the track with so little barriers that you often saw spectators dying. And that was, again, thank God we got rid of that. It's as safe, I think, as it can be at this point. It's still not, it's still incredibly dangerous. Like, let's let's not sugarcoat it. This is a lot different than most other sports. Anyway, moving on from the sad, there was interesting in that decade where well, we saw just, just, a couple things coming. Thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. One thing, just to, to hit back on. So for you, as an American, yes, do you think Phil Hill gets any kind no. of acknowledgement of being your first 
World Drivers' Championship, a no. champion. He he seems to be buried in history. It's like I know it was an era of Clark and real and Graham Hill and all a lot of big names, but he he won it. Yeah. Also, uh, way though, before but I mean, Andretti. If you if you're a casual fan, the only people you really know from '60 are probably Stewart and Clark. I mean, Clark, of course, Brabham, maybe if you're really getting into it. But like by the time Andretti wins, and I think it's 78, I may have the year wrong, we'll, we'll get there in a second. I think it was a broader sport. We had different news coverage. It was like just a, a bigger thing here and maybe around the world. But I think you nailed it. We should do a Vale's Tale on Phil Hill because I know nothing about Phil Hill other than he was the first American to win a World Drivers Championship. Yeah, and, and because it was such a um, less covered sport, you often found, though, that the champions got the airtime. And if you weren't a champion, you were almost in obscurity. But as long as you were a champion, you were in the headlines. But it just doesn't seem like uh, Phil Hill got that kind of coverage, right. despite the fact that he won the whole thing. So, sorry, you were saying that um, uh, changes in, uh, in the car. Yeah, order. as you already said, engines behind the driver. We saw the wings and shark noses, um, sponsorships started coming onto cars, which is always fascinating as as an American here because, you know, you we would watch, you know, when this started, a ton of gas gasoline companies and cigarette companies and booze companies. And, like, those were the people with the money who wanted to get the eyes of people watching the sport. And so it has evolved, of course, and we've seen it change wildly in the last few years even. And, and, you know, decades ago, we said no more cigarettes on the cars. It's bad for kids who want to smoke. And then no more booze on the cars. And all right, we'll do, you know, buzzing hornets and all these other random things. But here in America, we still haven't figured out that um, healthcare is really not. It's it, we advertise to customers, not patients. And so in IndyCar, it's all it's all friggin drugs, Nurtec and Ozempic. And it's like, you know, it's all drugs. And that's not the way of F1, and I love that. I'm so tired of watching Viagra boner pills go around the track on an Indy car, and I'd much rather watch, you know, whatever you a steak F1 car um, than a Viagra car. So I, it's it's a fascinating the, the evolution of sponsorship is also I think fascinating. Yeah, this is when it started. 1968, and that's later than I would. If you'd have asked me when did sponsorship, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't have really had a clue. But in my head, they've always had stickers on them, apart from when I think of, say, the Fangio car, which I know didn't, right. the Tubbs. But actually, no, if you think about any of the car, uh, you know, Jim Clark earlier on in the 60s, those, those uh, you know, the green, the green, green, green with the Lotus, yellow, it's like, the yellow yeah, number on there's it. There's nothing or on there bubble. other than a number. But anyway, so and then 68, I think I could have that wrong, is when the wings uh, started appearing. So the wings were quite late in the decade. And the funny thing that I referred to earlier that I found funny anyway was that while they could understand that these things had an effect of making them go faster, they didn't yet have the technology or the tools or the way of measuring what was working and what wasn't. So what started off as like little nubs almost of uh, we'll add a little tiny wing at the front, little tiny wing at the back. Oh, that, that seems to make us go faster. OK, uh, let's make them massive. And there were huge <laughs> variations in uh, you look, you just go and Google some of the late 60s, early 70s cars and look at the just the wild variation of how big some of these wings were and sometimes the wings were generating such downforce that the um whatever they're called the support structures to hold them in place would just break because they just they hadn't, they didn't have any of the computer technology to say well hang on a minute that's going to generate more downforce than those struts can possibly support computer. they found out that they wouldn't work on a straight probably when, yeah when the <laughs> al gore hadn't even invented the internet yet so to so, me we also saw cars and, and times you know going airborne 
because there was so much downforce on the back with the wings, it was lifting the front. And if you would go over a, a bump or a, you know cresting a hill wrong, uh, goodbye, you were taking flight. And so like all of these things, to Rob's point, an evolution. It was all an evolution uh, along the way. And in the 70s, we kept evolving. We got into cars that were lighter. The arrows started to be better understood. I Rob made a note here, and I agree. W you see cars that start to look like what we think of as an F1 car today. Like it, it's you're now into the genre of F1. Like yeah, all right, that's probably an F1 car. Um, it you know you start looking at intakes, cockpits, the wings in the right places. Now we will see variations. We'll see a lot through the years of crazy tall wings, like Rob said, putting them above the mirrors. You'll have rando wings just cordant nose lengths we'll see all fans six tires we're gonna see all kinds of crap people are gonna try everything um but yeah you start to look at cars that make it seem like you know what you i know. think if you asked a, if you asked a child to draw an f1 car from about the 1970s on they all will look in that similar kind Agreed. of shape i think is what we're, we're what we're yeah. trying to say and and as i started looking at say the um the the, the titles in my head and maybe I've just watched Rush too many times or just been fooled by the media, that the 70s is is basically Hunt versus uh, Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, Nicky Lauda, but it really isn't. Um, yeah, okay, 75, 76, 77, um, the three of them split the titles with Hunt winning one in the middle of two Lauders, but really there was a whole, whole heap of other stuff that went on uh, in the 70s. Now, unfortunately, as, as, as Brian said earlier, starts off on a bit of a downer. Um, uh, Rint died four races before the end of a uh, season uh, in 70, I think it's 70. Yeah, I want to say it's 70. Um, and he already had enough world championship points that no other driver managed to catch him and pass him by the end of the season. So it's the only season, thankfully, to 70. date, uh, in which the World Drivers' Championship title has been awarded posthumously. So Yeah, 70. Uh, you, got, you got it right. It is so sad. I didn't even know this till about a year ago. I think Lee brought it up. This is the third shout-out for Lee. Uh, maybe it was JP on the discord and i did not know that someone had posthumously won the f1 championship that year so that's again terrible way to start it and you mentioned hunt and lauda in the middle of the decade and the way they went back and forth in the movie rush i didn't even know they were in rush i just thought it was an olivia wilde movie it was so good i didn't notice the driving or the guys just olivia wilde she's fantastic that was my they throw me though but um so another country that if you if you want to name a, a country with what you think of a heritage in F1, I think Brazil will jump to a lot of people's yes. mind because of Senna, because of the the race itself and and uh, a number of Brazilians down the year. But really, we've covered the 50s and the 60s and Brazil hasn't shown up to the party yet. But that changed uh, in the 70s as Fittipaldi burst onto the scene uh, and took two titles in 72 and 74. So before kind of Hunt and Loud started doing their thing, it was uh, it was the Fittipaldi and uh, Brazilian decade that was starting to shape up um snuck in there 1973 jackie stewart yeah. um won the title um and he was going to retire on, on the at the usgp as the season came to a close uh but uh severt is killed in a practice crash and stewart elects not to start his 100th world championship race so he bowed out on 99 uh, already Sad. won the title, yeah. uh, and again, we're still in an era where deaths are occurring. It's going to keep going. Pretty We've frequently. We've got another, another yeah, decade and a half. I know. Go on, Brian. You can take the next one. Uh, so at this point, we already talked a little bit about this. Andretti, I was right, remembering it at 78 wins. South African Jody Schechter, often overlooked, wins in 79. 
Uh, in the decade, Ferrari and Lotus took four uh, constructors' championships each. That and makes me there, sad. What that Ferrari was good at some point. On both sides of the coin here, that yeah. we're gonna we're gonna re reel off Ferrari titles. We've been mentioning yes. them every decade so far, and then suddenly we're gonna stop mentioning Ferrari titles. Well, and on the other one is that Lotus used to be good. Uh, not even really around anymore, but... Um... Well, two things. One, Ferrari, they will be back, according to their message. We'll come back to you. And then the second thing is, <laughs> uh, Lotus, Jeremy Clarkson, one of the greatest comments in Top Gear history, and I've watched every episode about 30 times. Lotus, you know what that stands for? Lots of trouble, usually serious. Obviously, speaking about the road car, it always makes me laugh. I have a friend who has a similar joke about Ford. He's like, it's nice the way they make the logo. They circled the problem. Ford. And so um, <laughs> so anyway, in the, in the 70s, just to close this out, some interesting stories. I'll do one first. Um, we saw the fan car, the Brabham BT46 in 1978, the fan car. This car literally had a fan on the back of it, and it was done to provide cooling and aero, and it actually worked way too well. It was run one time at the 1970, it was the B variant of the car. They didn't use it the whole season. They brought it out. The B variant, 1978 Swedish Grand Prix. Um, and the BT46B, the Brabham, what, whatever the T stands for, 46B, the B variant, was one that won that race with none other than Nicky Lauda. So it's not as though we're putting crappy drivers in the back in this rando fan car we're like, oh, we got Nicky Lauda, one of the best drivers of all time. And we got this random car idea, and let's do it. You know why they did it? Two reasons. And this blows me away. This kind of goes back to our comment about Crashgate and the guy who escaped from it and worked at the FIA. Unrelated to bad stuff, but just random stuff. Gordon Murray. We've talked about Gordon Murray so much and all the work he did at McLaren and the things he designed and the innovations. I think he innovated the current idea of a pit stop. Um, and all the cars he's built, he built the road car, the McLaren F1, one of my favorite road cars of all time. That's a Gordon Murray design. And he was working at Brabham, built the fan car. And you know who owned the team at the time? None other than Bernie Eccleston, who would go on to run and own F1 after this. So just like the, the crossing of things to come to this random fan car who drove it and built it and owned it was wild. And, and it was just an, an example of... I don't know if this is the first example, but it feels like that in the um, 70s is when people started pushing the envelope to see could they get around rules, not right. around rules, could they push regulations to their limits? So this apparently was purely legal. In fact, they only ran it that one time, like you said, and then and then they didn't run it again, but not because it was deemed illegal, but I'm not even sure why they didn't do it again. But um, that fan, like you say, was there for cooling purposes that just had an accidental um, uh <laughs> A side effect of the where where it drew the air from in order to do the radiator cooling was from underneath the car. So, um, oh, oh, what? And that's that's leading to extra performance. Oh, who knew? We we only put it on there to cool the car down. <laughs> so something else that comes out, and this really is, if you want um, uh, a nice little, almost not a sap stat. Yeah, it's a quirky sap stat. I would say almost is what is the average number of wheels for a Grand Prix winning car in 1976? Well, the answer is obviously not four which it is in every other year that the, the uh, sport has ever run, but not in 1976. In 1976, the average number of wheels for a Grand Prix winning car is 4.125. Why, I hear you shout? Uh, because Jody Schechter 
Uh, a champion Swedish... who will become a champion as well. These yeah, are real they... drivers. Jody Schechter rocks up one day at the at the team uh, garage, and they said, "Hey, um, we've got this new Tyrrell P34 for you to to drive." He's like, "What's so new about it?" Well, just have a look. We think you'll probably notice. He goes out, has a little walk around the car, comes back in, and goes, "Is it April the first, guys?" And they're like, "Why?" It's obviously a joke. What do you mean? It's got six wheels. What were those extra two wheels doing on there? It's like it's a genius plan. Jody, Jody, it's a genius. Try, give it a try. Uh, see how you get on. How does he get on? And it's one and only ever race. It wins. I, and this is wild. Like to me, again, you have to Google this car. You have to Google if you've never seen it, the Tyrrell so P34. And you'll look at it and go, that isn't real. They never raced that. The front two wheels look like trolley cart wheels. They're so small. And these are, again, these are real teams from this era and real drivers. Both Schechter and Lauda are champions. Maybe not in this particular year, but they won in those cars. That would be the equivalent of Red Bull showing up and they say, Max, we've got something special for you. We're doing three wheels. Just one at the front, <laughs> two at the back. It's going to be super fast. And Max goes out and wins and then they stop running it. We would never see that today. That's, again, back to the the Andrea Moda video from Laura fits this so well. You just don't see uh, that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, unfortunately, I think the wider the loopholes in the regulations, the more wackier you can be yeah. to interpret them. Okay. And now we're getting all ups, upset over whether a technical directive is allowing porpoising uh, to go over a 15 <laughs> mil range. I mean, I don't Have think the wings the flexed to... <laughs> more than 15 millimeters or something. Exactly. Anyway. There's no scope for somebody to rock up and go. Yeah. You've got like six said. wheels. You've got six wheels on your car. Yep. Yeah. Nothing in the rules against that one. <laughs> and they're all on the left side. <laughs> it's a balancing act. All right. Moving on to the 80s. To the 80s. We have cars now and that, again, are, are starting to really hone in on what we think of as F1 cars today. Carbon fiber appears. Rob already mentioned this from a decade prior, but aero engineering intensifies. People are learning what they can and can't do with wings and noses and what we would call today side pods, but just air intakes. Um, we start to see you know, people really starting to focus on those cars. I do think, in all seriousness, that experimentation in the 70s, and I'm just making this up right now, So, but like the Gordon Murray type of people who have the vision and the ideas, I think they begat a lot of this kind of aero engineering intensifying because they saw smart people doing different things and it worked and yeah. they're like oh god we got to take this seriously now so I, I i could be way off by a decade no, but you, it just feels I, to me like that was the genesis some of that those types of people and and maybe people that are watching all of that smart thinking and taking inspiration from it are the folk over at mclaren and williams because now we're entering a decade which is when i started getting into that kind of sentimental kind of look back because from the middle of this decade onwards is when I really first started being aware of and watching F1. And for me, McLaren and Williams were the only teams in the world because they were the best. Um, and it, when you look back at this history, it's really only the 80s that we start talking about them really surging in and becoming uh, kind of big entities. They came in and they shared um, in the 1980s, eight of the 10 titles were shared between McLaren and Williams, leaving uh, 82 and 83 for Ferrari, slim pickings for Ferrari in the 80s. And that was at the beginning of the decade. So it was really a decade that McLaren and Williams kind of uh, grew into. Um, more Brazilian theme in this decade as PK rocks up and takes three drivers championships in the decade. Yeah. And like in my frazzled little look back brain, it was Senna and Prost that dominated the 80s. PK probably won one. Why he won three? It's amazing. And to, when you think I had of, to fact check that as I was going through the list. I oh was yeah. like, he won three? <laughs> I mean, I think it's amazing. We did Fittipaldi. We talk about PK. We talk about Senna. 
I mean, there are other amazing Brazilian drivers. Rubens, I mean, there are many others. Nelson Piquet Jr., we'll get into Father, Son in a second, put a pin in that because we're about to get to some notes here. But I just, I think Brazil has to have pound for pound some of the best F1 drivers of all time. Just as crazy when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then a name that we'll all know, depending on how... Well, if you're recent to the sport, you'll know this. the last name. You might not be familiar right. with, the, the, again, another father, someone. But Kiki Rosberg puts Finland on the map in 1982. Um, apparently, according to the source that I took here, uh, which I didn't note down, so somewhere on the internet, <laughs> the article said, this is the most wide-open season in F1 history in 1982. Rosberg's triumph at Dijon makes him the 10th driver to score a win out of the first 14 races of the season. And by the Las Vegas finale, uh, Tyrrell's... Uh, was it Michel Alboreto yeah. makes it 11 out of 16. We would kill for that these days. 11 yeah. different winners out of 16 races. Um, absolutely insane. So um, uh, let's pause there because KK Rosberg, you mentioned, uh, first of all, I forget finish just because Nico doesn't seem to me to be his son to be at all finish. I, I don't, I'm just saying that because I always see him in Monaco and, you know, I don't, it doesn't sound finish to me to an untrained ear. Um, but anyway, Nico's. Is Nico German? Is his mother German? I and think he's, maybe. He, he races under the German flag, doesn't he, Nico? Yeah, but regardless, father-son champion duo. Can you name the only other father-son champion duo? Uh, uh, is his last name a little bit like a smaller mountain? Correct. Uh, so Damon Hill and Graham Hill, not related to Phil Hill, but the Hills had their time. And then I love these father-son The Hills are stories. alive with the sound of champions. The, the, <laughs> well done, sir. <laughs> Um, but I love the father-son duos, like Max and Yas, yes. and there's so many, Michael, of course, and Mick, um, and there's even uh, Magnuson's father, uh, Kevin Magnuson's father, Jan. Well, the Schumachers keep, really keep it in the family, because they had Ralph yeah, in Ralph there as well, didn't they? Yep, yeah, yep. And there's, there are uh, many others, but those are the two champion uh, father-son duos. So, sorry, uh, back to you, you kind of hit this already. Talk about, about Prost Senna, just kind of like, well, yeah, really so comes then into its it, own. It, this is kind of what I remember because 85, 86, uh, and 89 are taken by Prost and Senna takes his first title in 80. So 85, 86, 88, 89, as young Rob is growing up and getting into this sport, I'm just seeing Prost's Buffon-style hair and Senna's <laughs> uh, devilish good looks and that McLaren. Um, that, that was the 80s for me, uh, the end of that. Now, what I didn't know and I, this could be a whole veil's tale. I'm going to have to find I don't a way of shortening this. this. So I'll, I'll let you you do this. this one. I'll buy your own. And, and, and I think this hints at some of the non-world championship races, some of them. Anyway, there was a war brewing in F1 that started at the late 70s and, and goes over into the beginning of the early 80s, which is the FISA Foca War. So FISA, uh, these are both defunct organizations now, have been replaced, but FISA was the Federation Internationale du Sport Automobile. So it was the kind of subsection of the FIA and FOCA, Formula One Constructors Association, which basically represented the privately owned teams. So sounds like, you know, your manufacturers, the Ferraris, Alfa Romeos, uh, you know, kind of all the Mercedes, they kind of all fell under FISA and FOCA was for your fly-by-night guys that turned up and wanted to build a car. So what were now the constructors? So anybody that kind of uh, constructed a, t uh, a, a car but didn't build the engine, they weren't a manufacturer, they fell under uh, FOCA. And they were basically loggerheads all the time. Um, FOCA led by... Bernie Ecclestone, 
uh, really wanted to commercialize the sport and you know take it more mainstream. Um, it really came to a head apparently um, this this kind of tug of war between the teams as between the organizations. 1982 San Marino Grand Prix, all of the Foca teams boycotted it. Um, they boycotted it because this is kind of clicking to Rosberg here. Is that uh, Nelson Piquet and uh, Kike Rosberg driving a Brabham and a o o Williams, which were both under Foca because they're constructors, uh, got disqualified from the Brazilian Grand Prix. Um, because and again, so like so much stuff that's going to come on further down the line of trying to push the regulations. Um, they came first and second. Renault appealed it and said you can't do that because they've got water-cooled brakes. And it's like okay, right. The regulations said that when you wage your car at the beginning of the race and when you wage your car at the end of the race, they basically had to almost be the same weight, like we do now, right? They didn't say you weren't allowed to touch the car. There wasn't the park Fermi conditions. So they ran this system called water-cooled brakes where they had a water tank that probably weighed a ton uh, that was going to be used instead of uh, like oil or whatever other kind of fluid to kind of uh, cool the braking system. What they actually did then was basically dump that water during the race, <laughs> uh, run a much lighter car, and at the end, before they went on to the way station, as they drove into the pit lane, someone came along with a little hosepipe and filled the water tank back up again. Um, and it was apparently completely legal, but really not in the spirit of it. So they appealed it. The appeal didn't come through in time. And I love this. I love this. I love the Ferrari almost, not spite, but Ferrari sitting on the Fisa side. And well, hang on a minute. We're going to do this then. And they turned up to the next race with two rear wings on the car. And everybody was in uproar going, what the hell are you doing? You're not allowed to. The rules clearly specify how big a wing can be. It says, well, yeah, but it only says how big a wing could be and doesn't say how many you're actually allowed to have. So if we think two wings that are both within the regulatory size, there's nothing in the regulations against that. And everybody had this big argument. So we well, can't do that. I said, yes, but this is where the sport's going to go if we're allowed to right. push the regulations beyond the scope of the intent of what was written on the paper. We're going to be in for a world of pain. So that's the shortened version. Concord Agreement came into place, which you've probably heard talked about right now. Is you know, the, the teams under the Concord Agreement with the the amount of money required to buy into it got I think revised when they were trying to stop Andretti coming in. But essentially, they all sat down around a table and. Um, agreed a whole bunch of different things which one of them in there and i won't go into all of it one of them i hadn't realized was that as part of signing up to the concord agreement the teams agreed to appear in every race in a world championship and apparently that hadn't been the case right up until now early 80s i just assumed that every team went to every race but most of the times lots of teams couldn't afford to go to flyaway races right. so south america north america anything that was far away from europe lots of teams just couldn't afford to go to um, and Bernie Eccleston saying, look, if I'm trying to get a, t uh, a promoter to put on a race, they want to know that they're getting the full field turning up. So if you want to be in this sport and you want to be sharing all the money, you're going to have to commit to being part of the traveling circus. And that kind of the early 80s solidified that. Um, I'm not sure if it made it things for the better. We'll come back to that in a bit. But uh, yeah, there you go. Wow. I didn't know any of that until I started looking at that yesterday. That's awesome. Thank you for that, that update. And actually, the Andrea Moda story, that team would go to races and show up and not run a car just so they didn't get the $200,000 penalty. <laughs> it was cheaper to send the cars that weren't going to run. Um, sadly, in early in the, in the 80s, Gilles Villeneuve died. Uh, we had his son Jack on. Uh, another, and I was saving this one for now, one of the other amazing father-son duos to run an F1. Jack, obviously, being a Formula One world champion in 1997. Um, we have that interview also on our special episodes because that was an amazing interview. But Jill passed away in 82. 
Um, and so we never got to see what, as Rob and I have talked about often, Senna, Prost, amazing. Can you imagine if Gilles and his Ferrari had been able to enter that fray as well? It would have been an amazing battle. But yes, Senna and Prost would battle and battle, and it was great. It was a decade. Senna was champion in 88, and I did not know this either. So here's one other one I did not appreciate. And so in 88, he scored fewer overall points than Alain Prost. But only the best 11, team, 11 scores of your 16 counted. Only the best 11 of 16. So at, Prost had to throw away three second places from his tally. And because Senna had had so much more at the sharp end of the stick in those 11 that he counted, he was able to take the, constru- the driver's championship with less overall points in a season. If that had happened to me, I would have just taken the trophy and walked away. Like, just... <laughs> I would I would have Prost and my little fro I would have went and got the trophy and I would have walked away and said screw you you, know, you. you would have done a Seb Vettel and you would have swapped the yes, uh, number one Canada, and number two Canada we swapped one and two that's what I would have done it would have made me so angry Could you, I, I didn't have enough time to do this I was when I read this I, I see again sort of selective memory I don't remember the late 80s only scoring but I, I was young I was kind of early teens so I probably didn't really take into account like what the overall point was versus no Senna's the champion I'm not going to delve into the fact that only 11 of the 16 counted but anyway I was going to look back over the last few years and see like if you could only pick well not 11 because these days that would be ridiculous that'd be like only selecting half of the races that right. you raced him but if you if you were only allowed to pick say 75 percent of your best who would have won now obviously Max would have won this year because <laughs> He would have only basically been picking from victories anyway, and he would have been able to skip over the blemishes of uh, Singapore and the ones that Checo won. So actually, Max probably would have had an even better season because he would have had a 100% strike rate. Right, and we're almost getting to the 90s where we'll talk about um, Nigel Mansell, but there are certain seasons like you're talking about where someone's that dominant, um, but when they're not... Where else could we have seen this kind of crazy Senna PK situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if uh, the Braun season, if they if anybody had to pick their best seventy five percent, would they have got caught because they didn't finish so strongly? Anyway, who knows? It didn't it didn't stay like that. Thankfully, we actually count all the points that people win. So, moving into uh, the nineties. It's just more of the same now. The cars really aren't going to change. Well, this is a stupid thing to say. They're not going to change radically because they are, but they're not at the same time. They're just more innovation, more fine-tuning of performance. Um, These really are the cars that I really properly remember now. Uh, Mansell's, Williams, and uh, and the like. Yes. Um, But we had uh, kind of the the titles really were uh, Senna won the first two. Uh, Mansell and Prost came along and took one. certain not really heard heard of him before but a guy called michael schumacher came in in and uh, the mid 90s and, and took the 94 and 95 titles damon hill grabbed 96 friend of the show villeneuve won 97 and then mika hakkinen came and stamped finland back on the map again uh with another two uh williams took five titles in the decade mclaren three so we still got that williams mclaren going on benetton good old schumacher in the benetton yes uh and Ferrari took the final one of the decade in, in 99. So it's a melting pot of stuff going on uh, in this era because we've got the greats. We've got Senna and Prost. We've got Mansell and his moustache. And we've got 
at this point, the person that we didn't know was going to go on to become at the time one of the greatest driver ever. We got Michael Schumacher bursting onto the scene into a Benetton and making a lot of British people angry by nudging, just giving a love tap to Hill around a, uh, a final corner in a world championship race. And, and, and Jack in 97, again, doing a similar yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and I know we hit this a little bit earlier and you just hit it a little, but in 94, we lost Senna in a crash. Yeah. A great champion uh, who was in the prime of his career in 94. I'm fairly certain it was at Imola. Imola. Yeah. Right. And the same and, and I... weekend, here's the thing that just is a shocker to me. The day before, Ratzenberger had died in a crash as yep. well at Imola. So sadly, we're into the mid-90s, 94, and we lost two drivers on the same weekend at the same event. I just how dangerous this sport is and how much we take for granted the safety today and, and just uh, got to appreciate people who came before us here. So, well, I was going to say as well that the mid nineties sort of created that pivot point of big safety changes coming in the sport because this, this sport has been evolving at a breakneck, breakneck speed, innovation, make it lighter, make it faster, aerodynamics, faster, 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 faster. And yes, okay, they're looking more secure because you've got monocoques and you've got drivers inside cockpits now rather than hanging out the side of uh, uh, Ascari's bathtub. But like you say, <laughs> just the speeds they're now reaching. Yes. You know, that safety isn't keeping up with the level of the speed differential. I mean, the, the car that Senna is driving at the point of his death is a little bit different to the uh, top speed that Ascari is going to uh, be able to hit. Yeah. So it kind of, the, the whole sport took a step back and uh, lots of safety uh, regulations start kicking in from kind of like the mid-90s onwards. Yeah, one other thing I'd highlight here and some of the stories of the 90s, We I talked a little bit, obviously, losing Senna in 94. If you go back to 92, one of the stories that always pulls at my heartstrings, if you will, was in the Belgian Grand Prix in 92. A driver, Eric Comas, Comas comes around and loses his car and crashes and ends up back on the track, unconscious, and the car is in a bad way. And Senna sees this. Senna is racing and sees this. And again, I can't, can't remember if it's in the Grand Prix or in a quali or a practice. It doesn't matter. He pulls over, he goes by, and he's interviewed, and he hears Comas on the gas pedal. Again, unconscious. His foot is on the gas. The car could easily go up in a ball of flames and is starting to become a bad, in a bad way here. Senna pulls over, unstraps himself from his car, runs back in his fire suit, gets Comas out of the car, and drags him away from what would, could become a humongous fireball. Saves his life. And... It's stories like that, like the video of this, of Senna frantically running to this car with his car sitting on the side of the road. I mean, these aren't like road cars. And he pulls over, slams the brakes, goes, saves this dude's life, and then unfortunately loses his two years later on track. Just amazing stories like that, that just kind of, you know, the 90s, I actually think, sadly and positively, had some of the craziest stories uh, I'll let you talk about the next one, but I want to hit the 96 Monaco Grand Prix real quick, Rob. Yeah, three, go for it. Three cars finished. Saw the checkered flag. Now, people classified. Some on the last couple laps had to retire, and they classified. But the number of cars that passed the checkered flag were three. <laughs> three. It was raining. It was chaos. No one had control of their cars. And Olivier Panis, the Frenchman, won his one and only F1 race in the 96 Monaco Grand Prix. When he finished first, everybody who passed the checkered flag that day, every single one, podium. 
<laughs> I'm talking of things that come in threes, and we had the the honor of speaking to the man himself involved in it. Um, yes, we had um, uh, pole position for the European Grand Prix, and Villeneuve, Heim, Heinz, Harold Frentzen, and Michael Schumacher all set the identical time, <laughs> uh, one minute twenty one and 0.072 seconds. And Villeneuve got the pole for being the first one to to claim it, but. Um, that's just bizarre that we actually got to speak to the man himself about that. That was quite cool about And I asked thing. him directly, were you nervous going to sleep that night, knowing you and Michael, one of you two would win the championship, and he has the exact same time as you and is starting right behind you. And he's like, no, I slept great. Yeah, best <laughs> night's sleep he ever had. I was like, what? <laughs> I would have been up the whole freaking night. Uh, that's why you're not a world champion. But uh, they made a different reasons. stuff, I think. But yeah. that's the only reason, Brian. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, the other little story that I found uh, from the 90s, and it's again, it's about kind of just people getting out of dangerous situations. But Japanese driver Taki Inua was on fire in the 1995 Hungarian Grand Prix. The medics came to uh, rescue him. Um, and as he got, he pulled out the side of the track, smoke coming out of his car. And as he got out of the vehicle and went to walk away from it, um, the medics arrived and maybe pulled in a little bit too close to his car. And they knocked him over and he went flying over the bonnet or the hood. Um, so silly little things like that. Um, we already mentioned uh, Schumacher's 94 and 97 aggressive maneuvers on uh, Hill and Villeneuve. One that he got away with, one that he didn't. Um and as we kind of talked about the safety, because they were trying to slow the cars down, 1997 is the last time we got to see slicks on a on a car for over a decade. Uh, we won't see them again until 2009. Um, so we had those awful looking, and yeah. I get, I know they were there for safety. I know they were there to slow the cars down, but I didn't like the grooved, nope. uh, the grooved tires. Agreed. So and uh, the pictures of of Taki Anui being hit by the medical car are wild. Just like when you see him on the hood of the car that came to rescue him. I'm like, what What? What happened, man? Yeah, it's just, can you imagine the, because there's no social media uh, then for it to be all over, right? Can right. you imagine if, say, um, anything had happened? I mean, the most, the most ridiculous thing I can think of recently that we've had is when Sign's car was on fire and he had to basically stop his own car from rolling right. down the hill because all the marshals were just watching and, and didn't come and help him out. No quickly. one had a block of you wood know, to come block yeah. a tire for him. Can you imagine, like, um, if, uh, I don't know. Max Lewis is getting out of a stricken car at the side of the road, and one of the, and the safety the medic car comes and like knocks them over. Uh, yeah, one one last thing here on the '90s, um, and I want to highlight it in two regards. One, the '92 season uh, by Nigel Mansell. Uh, I said this briefly. It's with Max Verstappen's. It's Jim Clark's '63. It's Ascari's '52. Those types of seasons are rare to see such domination, and I don't think Nigel gets enough credit for it. We did a Vale's Tales on Nigel Mansell. It's an incredibly interesting story. Uh, check that one out. But at the same time, one thing we also saw back then that we do not see anymore is when a car was stricken on the side of the road, to your point, uh, people would often get rides back to the pits from other drivers, like at the end of the race or in practice, something that would never be. You'd, uh, you're not even, Lewis got a penalty for being on a live track at Qatar this year. Could you imagine if someone stopped next to Lewis's car and he sat on their side pod and they drove him around on the side of the car hanging on? The, that would not be allowed. But that's what they did back then. I mean, they were sitting on wings and they'd pick regularly. You'd see these pictures. And so, again, the Wild West of F1 has clearly been taken away. Uh, and I think it was basically the 90s where all that kind of stuff started to end. Yeah. And, you know, it's we're better for it. 
cars are safer for it. But I do miss a little bit of that Andrea Moda, check the video kind of aspect. And the, we celebrate the millennium. We come into the year 2000. Um, while safety is ratcheting up, also, you know, the highly skilled engineers uh, are really zeroing in on how and uh, what makes a car go faster. Uh, we are now to Brian's point earlier on. We're now starting to see aero appearing everywhere on cars. We've got barge boards. We've got winglets. We've got. If you can put a wing on a surface, it's almost going there at this You've point. You've got and one I didn't diffuser. This. I've got two diffusers. But 2004, um, we kind of almost started hitting like the, the the pinnacle of the speeds that in that particular season, the majority of lap records across the entire calendar got trashed that year. Um, and that was really uh, due to a certain Mr. Schumacher that we've already referred to and his partnership with Ferrari because they absolutely smashed it for uh, the first five years um, of the decade. 2000 through 2004, Ferrari and Schumacher, boom. Um, and that made it uh, six in a row for uh, Ferrari um, in the decade as well. So, I mean, again, I look at this through kind of oh, sad eyes of like, A, Schumacher, and, and unfortunately what's happened to him now, but what a great driver he was and Ferrari just absolutely dominating was a great time to be a Ferrari fan. Um, the person that brought um, Schumacher's run to an end, um, driver not around these days anymore, you might not have heard of him, uh, Spanish guy, Fernando Alonso. Do you remember yeah. him, Brian? No, not heard of him. It was wild, right? We had Kimi Raikkonen. We had it going a year ahead here, actually, to 2009, the last year in the decade, was the Braun year. So we've already talked about Rob trying to figure Wait, out you how jump to... jump in? Look at you time jumping. You, you can't yeah. keep yourself back. And you just jumped over... You jumped over Lewis! Well, you go for it. <laughs> so Alonso came in and, and uh, took his 2005 and defended it 2006. Like you say, Kimi took it in 2007. Um, just ahead of a rookie. And we've lauded in on this pod here how, what a phenomenal job we thought uh, Piastri did this year. Yes. And my friend Az, who was on the Discord show and has been on 100 Seconds of DRS, kind of sent me a note and said, you know, people are saying Piastri's rookie season is one of the best ever. You know, where does it uh, rack up against Max and uh, Lewis? Now, Max's actually wasn't a brilliant um, uh, rookie season. It was okay. It's not like he sucked and did a, a Mazda spin around the bat, but in his Toro, Toro Rossi, he did okay. I don't he think he won a single race in his first uh, oh, year, though. He was the youngest winner ever when he did. He win. was the youngest winner ever, but I think that was in his second year. I can't um, So in his rookie season, I don't believe he did win a uh, one. Hamilton knocks everybody out of the park in terms of the rookie season from those three. Yes. I'm not sure if there's a rookie that did better than Hamilton before that, but he almost won the title. Kimi pips... Uh, Hamilton for title in 2007. Uh, Hamilton has had a bit of a sniff of this and says, hold my beer for 2008 and <laughs> comes in and uh, wins his, wins the title. So, and you know, who was his teammate? Fernando, the first year. How'd that work? Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, Talk you start seeing more early. teammate kind of right. I mean, I know we'd had teammate yeah. rivalries in the past, most definitely, but they seem to be more common as uh, as things maybe got more competitive. But like you say, we ran the, the ran the decade out. Go on, I'll let you finish. Braun this GP, an amazing out. story, not just Rob trying to pirate it on his computer or whatever, but the fact that you can listen to our Braun GP coverage from Paul, Pit Lane Paul, who was there. And you hear the story of what Braun was really like, and I can't I haven't watched it yet either. I can't wait. Their one and only season as a team, they win. Uh, just tremendous. And as I joked, they had the double diffuser. You have one diffuser, I have two. <laughs> and so it was fun Funniest. to watch. 
Yeah. The funniest thing about that was we had Paul on to tell us the story. And again, you've got to go back and find the, the Braun GP episode, like just various little pieces that he tells around that you couldn't, I think, like he said, if it had come out as a film first with with the details absolutely perfect, everybody would have criticized it for being fantasy. You, that would never happen. You can't possibly have that. You can't have a car with no sponsorship on it and then have Richard Branson walking through a park with some stickers in his hand to go stick the Virgin stickers on the car. I mean, it was amazing. But it was when he came on the week after he sent us in a, an audio clip to try to explain to us in layman's terms what a double diffuser was because he didn't really know he knew it was the secret source that made them competitive and win that year and when we tried to ask him on the episode he was like yeah i, I don't really know it's you know witchcraft and then he sent us in a, a, an explainer the following week which really didn't explain him much no he may have understood it i didn't um so some weird stories in this decade rob we'll go chronologically since you yelled at me for skipping over lewis i was going to save that for the end but we'll go in chronological order um you put this in here, but this is one of, again, one of my favorite races, like the 96 Monaco Grand Prix, always in my mind, where I put it on there, three people finish. 2005 at the Indianapolis Speedway, um, six cars started the race because of a Bridgestone Michelin situation where people weren't sure their tires would be safe at the high speeds on a oval. Uh, six cars started the race and they were all in their grid position because they'd done quali and they'd done, you know, the practice and they got there and as they went out for the formation lap, all of the runners, I think on the Michelins, but I'm going to get, I probably got it backwards, but they all came in. I'm going to go with you. If we're we're wrong, we're wrong together, Brian. Thank you. Because then all the cars on the Bridgestones came in, regardless, it's one or the other. And six cars lined up in their grid spots on a disgusting race. Can you imagine being a fan who drove to Indy or flew to Indy to watch that and six cars go out to start? And again, you know, you do, you want people to be safe. 100% about safety, I get that. But as a, from the fan perspective, watching only six cars show up on the starting grid would have really bummed me out. I was just kind of thinking, like, are we going to see any retirements? Or, like, because it was just... I remember, I remember sitting there, and you're right, I just quickly Googled it while you were uh, monologuing there. And, uh, yeah, Michelin had safety concerns about their tyres. Bridgestone. Yeah, you, of course you did. You just... I don't even know why you uh, doubted yourself. 50-50 um, chance. It was... I just remember sitting there watching it, thinking... Is this? Are they going to go through with it? There's been this noise about whether or not it was going to happen or not. But then all of the cars seemed to take to the grid okay this is great um they head off their formation lap okay we're gonna have a race and to see them all peel off i was like what the hell is happening here it was i'll tell you what gave me flashbacks which was the race where um because of the wet dry start thing lewis was the only lewis. one who took the grid and everyone was hungry everyone was hungry in the rain yeah he was and everyone front peeled and yeah that gave me like uh, flashbacks to uh indy totally and i wasn't watching at this point I my fandom like got lost with work like I've told you like I went through this period where you know we saw dominance in the 90s from people and I kind of lost some of my fandom in the early 2000s as like Schumacher especially was so good I watched a little bit and he always won I'm like ah, I got work I don't know what to do and I didn't watch a ton so I, I, I watched this in retrospect is basically where I had to go back yeah and the last two here are things that I think I would have known more about like I didn't get as embroiled with the side stories no, not side stories, but like, so we had um, McLaren and Ferrari had Spygate and we had Crashgate. So Spygate 2007, Crashgate 2008. You just have to put gate at the end of something and it's oh, in it. Watergate's it's ruined awesome. it for yeah, everybody. I know where point. Watergate was. So, just, you're not American, I don't know. The, these days, 
things like this coming out of the woodwork, a bit like, say, the cost cap stuff, would have been so under the microscope of social media, you wouldn't have been able to move left or right without... Cost cap gate? <laughs> cost gate. Gate. Um, but these kind of pass me by a little bit. I know more about them now looking back me too. as a historical thing and looking into it, maybe even because of having the pod and, and kind of spending a bit more time in the history of the sport. These were things that I was aware of, but but hadn't really paid much attention to. So I, I, if you want to go and read up on those things, they're just kind of low points of the sport where uh, basically underhand dealings, uh, spying and stealing of ideas and forcing people to crash on purpose to benefit races. Well, and... Crashgate, really, the only thing only thing we know, because we have talked about what happened at Renault in 2008, um, is that the person who was told to crash, another father-son duo. Three-time Brazilian champion Nelson Piquet, and his son was told to crash Nelson Piquet Jr. So, again, a lot of father-son duos that kind of weave their way through the history, uh, good, bad, and sad, uh, of a lot of this. But, interestingly, we move into the 2010s. And so at this point, um, Brian, yeah, what? this is a low point for the for the cars and how how they look. You got back into it now. Did you live yeah. through this? Yes. Okay. I didn't understand oh. all the regulations. Like, so you talk about the noses and things. Like in, I think it was 2014 actually when the new turbo hybrid regs came in, that they had some other re regulations on the length of the car and how the noses could work. And you saw a lot of like, and I don't want to talk about what it looked like, but just like a little point at the end. Finger, apparently. I, I finger. They refer to as finger noses because yes. that allows you to not make the phallic reference. Well, the low tie, if I remember, if it was them, I think, they decided to go with two fingers, but you couldn't have them the same length. So That's they right. had, uh, one was longer than the other, and it was 2014 because I was just watching the coverage of the Australian Grand Prix. Um, which kicked off the year, I think it was Australia, and they were talking about why they were different length finger noses. I'm like, that's dumb. It, we we just had an era, and, and anybody that liked the shape of these noses, whether it was the ones with the kind of almost flat nose ends, but with a little finger poking out versus the really long fingers versus the double fingers. I mean, it's just an era where I look at those F1 yeah, cars and go, Agreed. can we just forget about those? Can we forget those ever existed? Because they, I don't think they look good. And we saw um, we saw basically two sets of domination, right? Red Bull in the beginning of the decade with Seb winning four in a row. And then yep. Mercedes picking up from there when we start the new regs. Um, and as soon as we start those new regs, again, I'm partway through the 2014 season. It's basically Lewis and Nico first or second for almost every race. Um, in 2014 and so that'll continue right and that Lewis and Nico thing will continue as Lewis and Nico mainly Lewis obviously takes a lot of titles from that point forward I just want to highlight one thing real quick Rob about 2014 because it was sort of a turning point right Seb's dominance of those four years in a row shifted to the Mercedes dominance and that was when we saw the turbo hybrid V6 come into come into effect we haven't talked a lot about engine sizes we've gone from v8s to v10s we've had some v12s we had some v8s we had turbos no turbos too expensive for turbos and things and so on the 2014 turbo hybrid v6 with the battery and the recovery and the way we look at it today is was obviously a big shift a lot of people would tell you the sound is not as good i'd be one of those people um and so the thing that was wild to me as i was watching these 2014 races thanks again uh, Craig, for the idea of going back and finding the right length while working out. There are seven drivers who were on the grid in 2014 who will be on the grid in 2024. What? 
it's a full decade plus later because you know 2023 would have been the end of that decade and so we was moving to the 11th year seven drivers i'm going to read you the drivers on the beginning of the grid and you're going to hear a lot of names for even a casual fan that are that are familiar because they just retired or they're in indycar so it's like this the whole grid was basically there marcus erickson obviously having success in indycar uh Kamiu Kobayashi, not so much. Kimi Raikkonen, just retired. Fernando Alonso, still running. Chaco Perez, still running. His teammate, Nico Hagenberg, still running. Roman Grosjean, IndyCar. Pastor Maldonado, no. Max Chilton, his brother Tom, was always on Top Gear, some of the BTCC driving. Um, we had Jules Bianchi, who sadly passed away at the Japanese Grand Prix that year. Kevin Magnussen, we're familiar with him. Jensen Button, still around the sport. Nico Rosberg, retired after his championship. Lewis Hamilton, we all know who that is. Seb, just retired. Danny Rick, still running. Esteban Gutierrez and Adrian Sutil. And then uh, Jean-Eric Verne. Danny Kvyat, Max's girlfriend's baby daddy. Who just, I had to get that. It was a complicated mess in my brain. Felipe Massa still trying to win the 2008 championship. And current driver Valtteri Bottas. That's a lot of drivers. Who's that, one? Who's that, who's that last one? A friend of the show. Check the episode. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, just, it's, it's wild to me. It, and we've kind of hinted at this. We've been talking about like rookies, the, you know, no new drivers next year. Do rookies always get a chance coming in? You know, last year, okay, we had uh, Logan and. Uh, Oscar and DeVries. So the, it does look like there's a room for rookies coming through, but not a huge volume when you look at that lineup of a decade ago and think a big chunk of those guys are still driving. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, kind of, like you said, it was uh, every every constructor championship is um, uh, Mercedes from 24 to 19. So it's Red Bull and Mercedes, basically. They take the entire, uh, the entire decade. Um, things that kind of stick out, uh, these are a little bit more sharper in memory because it's not so long ago but we had uh, the turkish grand prix in 2010 we had uh, seb and weber uh, having their big smash together as uh, those two didn't have a lot of uh, love between them i don't think <laughs> no um 2011 multi 21 seb multi 21 oh, we, we, we haven't got any evil music have we we've got the bomb 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 but we haven't got any kind of evil music i don't no. think but 2011 saw the dawn of drs drs came into the sport in 2011 uh 2012 so we were kind of just saying um, a few minutes ago about kind of like the, the Rosberg season, Kiki, when there were so many different winners over the first 16 races. 2012, first seven rounds of the 2012 World Championship were won by seven different drivers. We had Button, Hamilton, Vettel, Weber, Alonso, Rosberg, and Pastor Maldonado in a Williams, uh, which I think is the last race they've won. I don't think Williams have uh, won a race since 2012. I can't I think remember. Been around the back of the grid, and they're waiting did to Latifi do a McLaren. Have, did Latifi have any wins? Oh, that's that? right. Latifi yeah, won the championship, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, yeah in that yeah. alternate reality. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, twenty sixteen saw a youngest ever uh, Grand Prix winning driver, Max Verstappen, as uh, as Brian already pointed out. Twenty fifteen, I think, was his rookie season. Twenty sixteen, he won the Spanish Grand Prix, aged just eighteen. 
Um, and we actually already referenced this one. Canada 2019 saw Seb getting a bit of a strop about what he felt was an unjust penalty, which it probably was, costing him the Canadian uh, win. Uh, so he swapped the Park Ferme signs he, over. He did cut the grass on that corner. He and did. You can say it's an unsafe rejoin or whatever the hell the title is, but I know it was it was a bad. Yeah, one of those ones that you could have it could have gone either way. And if you were yeah, a Seb you fan, do? you were gutted Stop for him. If you wait yeah. for a green light, I mean, yeah. I, I got one thing to add to the, our notes on the 2010s. Yeah, it go was for it. 2010 when the scoring system changed to mm. 25 points for first as opposed yeah. to 10. And so you will see some things. At one point, I think it was like 2014 or 17, they had like double points for the last race. That didn't last. Oh, yeah. We added fastest lap, I think, in 19, 2019 back. Hadn't been there for a while since the early 50s. I like our scoring system now, but when people talk about things at a points perspective, it doesn't work because in 2009 and before, it was a fraction of the points. So, yeah, I think it was 10 points for a win, wasn't correct. it? Correct. Now it's 25. Yes. So that you'll often see, and if, if you're newer to the sport, if you've never been paid that much attention to it, when you see people trying to do historical comparisons of drivers, you might always Don't see little asterisks points. and down the bottom and it will say points adjust. No, a lot of people go back and re yeah. use today's scoring mechanism and they'll give like a Scari 25 points for a win. But, but if we you already see that, like, yeah. if you see points adjusted, then people are trying to level the field for both not only the number of points that someone scores per race, but also how many the races are that there are these days. Because trying to put someone's points total over somebody else from somebody in this era that's driving 20 plus times a season versus some of those championships that had Ten. 10 races. Right. You, you, you can't. And, and, and so it's one of those that arguments counted. that not, not only are the personal points of view in all of this, but also it's really difficult to kind of do a comparison because of that. Totally. So... Here we arrive in the 2020s, which we don't really know how this decade is going to pan out because we're still quite new to it. What we do know is we arrived with cars that were absolutely gorgeous to look at, in my opinion. Agreed. But were massive. Agreed. So I agree with you. You know, even like in the in the teens, we saw a lot of cars with really long, high wings going down the back from the cockpit to the the to the rear wing. I never liked that. I know Ferrari no, I really either, no. benefited from that a lot. It, I thought it was uglier than Sin. The the wings at the front and the back are now a little more sexy, dare I say, compared to the, I'd the square say, version. And yeah. I've never thought about it till me and you sat down to do this, but chipping those pictures out of the cars down the decades. You look at that first sort of one in the in the seventies when we sort of said they start looking like a car would look like as a Formula One car. We've kind of gone through this evolution where we've thrown all manner of stupid wings and noses and all these kind of things to turn them into like Franken cars. And they've now the regs have kind of tidied them back up into I would say this still looks like if you this is like a traditional Formula One car. It's yeah. got a hell of a lot more tech on it now. Yeah. But there's something simple about it now in terms of not all extra bits all over the place that uh I like them. I like. I do too. I do too. I just wish they were smaller. Agreed, a hundred percent. But speaking of safety, and we referenced this for a second in the in the 2020s, you know, some interesting things to think about. Obviously, the 2021 battle between Max and Lewis was a fascinating battle. Then Red Bull since then, and watching them dominate this last year, Max's season again. You gotta say it. One of the st statistically most dominant seasons of all time, with the other ones I've already referenced. Uh, but in 2020, the COVID year. You've heard a lot of people on the 100 Seconds of DRS talk about this. When F1 came back, it came back relatively soon in the COVID era compared to some other sports, especially here in North America. Two, it was on in the mornings and Drive to Survive had been going and running in, in that February and March when COVID hit. So it became a Tiger King thing where a lot of people started binging that in the previous season of Drive to Survive. 
And a lot of fans really grew into F1 at this point. So that was fun and fascinating, and we've joked about it. it at least here in North America, it was no longer the secret handshake club. I got, met more and more people interested in F1, and that was great. But the 2021 season was also interesting because there were no fans in any of the stands. And so it was an empty kind of approach to the race. There was no cheering. They tried their best to make it interesting. They put fan pictures in corners, on you know, overlapped on the screens, and sometimes on billboards. But the 2022 races in Bahrain, for me, are two of the most interesting to watch at the beginning of this decade. Obviously, a lot of 21 with the Max and Lewis battles were fascinating. In retrospect, don't talk to me about Abu Dhabi. That never happened. And so, and not because I wanted Lewis to win. I just didn't like the way it was handled. Um, but 2020 Bahrain, first off, you had the regular race where Roman Grosjean survived a horrendous crash. If yeah. you're interested Oof. in understanding what safety means today and you're a newer fan and didn't see this, go back to that fireball. Why he calls himself the Phoenix now. Watch some of the Sky Sports interviews with him. You will shed some tears as I did when I watched it. I watched it live and then when I watched the interviews and his wife and his family and you're like, Jesus Christ, it was so scary. So watch that. And But the really, the next one after it, the short, when they go back, they call it Sakir, the Sakir short. When they go back and they run the separate track the next week, because instead of, you know, where could they go and travel, what was safe, they stayed there. Lewis was out with COVID, and George was deputized from Williams and sat in Lewis's car. And that Mercedes was dominant in 20. And it was just an amazing story. And the way things fell apart for Mercedes, the way Checo had his first win, I actually love the 2020, you know, Bahrain short just because of all the storylines. So if you get a chance, go check it out. I know it's recent, but to me it's a good transition from like the 2010s and the the way we kind of shifted some of the, the car sizes and what safety meant and into the COVID fandom. 2020 Bahrain, one of my short, one of my favorites. Yeah, and I think that pretty much, I mean, other things of note in this fledgling decade, um, Pod called the Dirty Side of the Track launched. Uh, <laughs> Jack Villeneuve appeared on it in 22. Valtteri Bottas appeared on it in 23. Who knows what's coming in 24? But um, yeah, I think that puts a bow around the Dirty Side delving down the decades. It was a great uh, idea. A Formula you had, One. Rob. It was fun, fun, fun looking back. We do all these Vales tales, and I think like pick a driver from a particular era and we talk about them, but then we've never done anything looking at the eras that they sat within to kind of understand where they were inside those eras. So, yeah. uh, like I said, this isn't going get to get you kind of answering all the Formula One historical questions on Jeopardy. We didn't go that deep, but uh, hopefully gave everyone enough of a, uh, a feel for F1 from 1950 to 2024. Um, yeah, anything to add before we kind of close out, Brian? No, I'm looking forward to the new season, obviously. I do think, you know to our odds you know as we look forward now if we looked at 73 years of history or 74 years of history i guess because you got to count the first uh, you know five zero fifty um yeah i'm looking forward to the season i'm hopeful it won't be quite as a dominant red bull season but as we've talked about we've seen lots of eras of teams having dominant performances and drivers having dominant performances it's not a one-off it's the way it works with the regs come out someone nails it and Adrian Newey is up there with the Gordon Murrays in the way he designs cars. So it shouldn't be a shocker um, that they were able to figure this out. It's good for them. Um, but I'm hopeful that, to your point, we see some of those some of those KK Rosberg years where you know you have yeah. a bunch of different winners. I, I don't think it won't be this 12, year. But I don't think we're going to get twelve different winners no. in the first twelve races. Keep so my fingers crossed, though. You never know. Think, Talking of keeping happen. fingers crossed, you know we've me and. 
Brian, or sorry to be grammatically correct, Brian and I, uh, we're kind of chatting about what we want to do with the, the dirty side this year. And we've kind of, we've mentioned how we're going to revamp the 100 seconds of DRS thing. We're going to come out with a, a quiz, the who wants to be a dirty sider. We've got to work all that out and then we'll publish the details so that people can sign up for that. We are desperately trying to see if we can get some uh, more guests to come back on because uh, why not? We love doing it. We love to dine out on the fact that we've had uh, people on there and Brian loves to play sound clips of people we've had on. So we'll be trying to see what else we can do there. On that note, Neither of us are really comfortable in doing this bit because it kind of sounds like we're on a cash grab. But we have decided to launch Dirty uh, Side of the Track on buymeacoffee.com. So uh, if anybody out there happens to want to either give a one-off little donation to the Dirty Side or wants to become a member, uh, we do have a, a monthly membership on there of three whole dollars a month where there's going to be the main two benefits you will get are A, our eternal thanks, and B, we will drop some kind of exclusive, maybe, you know, uh, wallpapers for either your uh, laptops or your phones in there. Just some sort of little token gesture. Because what we're going to try and do is plow all of that back into promoting this pokey little pod and see see what 2024 can bring us. Yep, All of it, as Rob said, every single dollar of anything given, all of it, every one of them goes back into promotion, whether it's ads or other things that we may do. Um, so we appreciate your consideration there. We both feel a little weird doing this, but uh, yeah. at the same time, you know, we're both paying for the Zooms and the hosting on Buzzsprout and all the other things that come with this. So to we're comfortable leaving the out-of-pocket costs at the production aspects. Any promotion, though, uh, every single thing that were to come in, 50 cents, it's going to go straight into promotion somewhere. So we appreciate your consideration uh, if you're in a in in a place where you're able to do so, we'd appreciate your thought about it. And if you don't want to, no worries. We're still going to be here doing our thing. Exactly. We'll throw the link in, um, like on our social media channels. We'll add the link in the bio, and we've got a little QR code. We'll probably throw on something somewhere at some point. We're we're really not very good at this part of things, so uh, no. that's it. And I'm, I'm <laughs> we can remain bad at this part of things. That's okay. <laughs> Oh, man, that was fun going through the decades. Uh, great way to start off 24. I can't believe it's 2024 already. I'm old enough now where every time the calendar turns, I'm like, really? That happened again? Uh, I don't because next year is – this This year's great. Once the calendar turns next year, it's the year that as a kid was never, ever, ever coming. Okay, uh, well. 2025 is uh, the big 5-0. Damn, you are old. I know. I know. Really old. So uh, – Surprised I even know what computer is and what a microphone uh, is and how to push these buttons, but there we go. You know what? Now I understand why you're so cranky all the time. <laughs> and so, <laughs> on that note, with that, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. We can't wait to talk to you next week and have a great beginning to your 2024. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>